Good morning. It's certainly good to see you all again this week. I want to start this morning with just a little bit of recap from last week. If you were with us or you happened to join us online, we talked about the gospel and what the gospel really is. We talked a little bit about what has become over the last 100 to 150 years, namely the four spiritual laws and the formulation that particularly the American church has put together as it tries to explain to the world what it is that Jesus has done. And we, we talked a little bit about how the gospel as presented in the gospels, in the letters from Paul and Peter and the other New Testament writers is actually something that's much larger and broader than merely the message of salvation that comes from the four spiritual laws. And we said that by no means are the four spiritual laws false or a lie. They are all principles that you find in the New Testament. We talked about how the fact is that you will not find that particular formulation in the pages of the New Testament. And today we're going to really delve into Jesus as king, which we said is what Jesus claims the gospel is and what Paul and Peter claim the gospel is a little deeper today. Um, but we're going to come in at, at, at a different angle and, and from a different purpose. As we do that, I just want to recap what we kind of said the gospel is um, in terms of the gospel writers grabbing four themes that come out of the Old Testament and the, the stories of Israel as they progress towards the coming fulfillment that we find in Jesus. And we talked about how the gospels themselves uh, see themselves as the climax of that story, that they had been building towards the coming Messiah uh, and, and they position themselves by reviewing that history, all of them in their own unique ways, they position themselves as the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. And so they are the climax of a story that has been going on for thousands of years. Um, and we talked also about how that second theme is that uh, these, the gospel is the story of how God returns. We often think of the gospel as the story of God coming, which it is, but it also, that coming is a return that God had promised to be with his people. He had lived with his people previously in both the tabernacle and the first temple. And we've talked on a number of occasions already over the last few weeks about how the people in the first century, Israel, was waiting for God's return. And the story of Jesus is that return. And then that return, of course, launches God's people. And, and we as a modern church often look at that and think of it as the starting of the thing that God is doing, when in reality, it is God renewing his people. We, we read that uh, Jesus himself says, and Paul says that the gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. What God is doing is renewing his covenant people and then expanding that promise. And if we think that God has thrust aside Israel and is done with them and, and he's come to us, you know, special Gentiles to create this church, we've, we've very much missed the purpose and, and that overarching story, which is so important. And then the last thing that we talked about, which is for us as modern Christians, American Christians particularly, is this idea of a clash of kingdoms. And we looked at a number of ways that the gospel writers and the story of Jesus sets up this dynamic in which the church, the people of God, are to be in, in some tension with the powers of the world. Um, and that's, that's a message that we, particularly as American Christians, have screened out and don't talk about nearly enough. So that's kind of sort of the recap. If, if you didn't hear last week and those ideas sound odd or uh, intriguing in any way, I really high, highly recommend you go back and listen to that, uh, that message um, to get the sort of full breadth of, of what we were saying last week. When I was in uh, early discussions with the consistory about whether or not uh, they wanted to have me come talk to you all on a regular basis, um, one of the questions that I was asked was, can you help us with our mission? And I would like to think so. I hope so. 
one of the things that we're going to do beginning this week and probably for the next four to six weeks at least, um, and we probably will never get away from, but we're doing intentionally, is really looking at some of the great church movements over, over the history of the church the last 2,000 years. And we're going to try to tease out and pick out what is it about them uh, that has helped spurn or cause sort of the gospel to take hold in these different communities, different times and different places. And as we do that, we're going to look at primarily two of them, which, which are sort of the most substantial. Uh, there are many different movements within the last 2,000 years of Christianity uh, in which, for one reason or another, the message of the church sort of takes root and, and people begin to believe and, and it grows. But the first one we're going to talk about today is the, the Chinese church. Because actually what has happened there over the last, uh, let's say, 1,800 years or, or more um, is, is absolutely remarkable. In about 700, the year 700, so the 8th century, Christianity starts to come to China. And then for the next 1,700 years, 1,200 years or so, excuse me, until about the 1940s when the Chinese emperor Mao Zedong takes uh, power, the, the missionaries work and they build this church and they built it to about 2 million people. And so it's a substantial church by the 1940s. What happens when Zedong takes power is he clamps down on the church, kicks out all the missionaries um, and starts to really persecute the Chinese church. And then when Jimmy Carter came into the presidency in, in I believe, 1979, he reestablishes democratic or, or diplomatic relations with China, and it sort of opened back up to the West. And as far as the church was concerned, they were obviously concerned that they were going to go back in and find a church that was devastated. And what they found as they went back in, that that 2 million had grown in just 40 years to nearly 60 million people. So for 1,200 years, the Western Christianity had been working to evangelize the Chinese nation and had grown from zero to two million, which is substantial. And then a period of 40 years under the persecution of the Chinese empire, it grew to 60 million. So something happened in that time that caused it to spread like wildfire. And then the other, obviously, I think for us, obvious sort of movement of God and his spirit happened during the early church in which a similar uh, thing took place. If Christ was crucified in 30, so seven, the first 70 years of the church, uh, that church had gr grown to about 25,000 people. In AD 100, the persecution of the Roman Empire really started to take hold. And for those 200 years between 100 and then 310, when Constantine establishes the Christian church as the official religion of the Roman Empire, a similar growth takes place and it goes from 25,000 people to nearly 20 million within the Roman Empire. And so we see there also this sort of explosive growth of the, of the message, of the gospel message. And the question becomes, how in the world did both of these movements that are so exponential, how did they actually happen? What was going on behind the scenes? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to sort of pull out what, it, what the message was a little bit today, um, and then how the people sort of were acting and living and, and expressing this message and living it out in their lives that was so compelling to people that in spite of persecution, in spite of being thrown to lions and, or, or rejected by their communities um, or in, in various other ways at serious risk to themselves, why did they take hold of this thing and, and buy into it in the way that they did? One of the, the, the things that is true of all of 
these movements, whether it's these two or something like the Methodist movement. Um, certainly that we look around and we see a number of Methodist churches in town. Uh, they seem to be sort of on every street corner. Um, and that's, that's because that was another movement that sort of took hold and uh, exploded, particularly in early America. But these movements have at their core a very simple message. And so for the last 2,000 years, the church has developed uh, sort of weighty, massive theologies. Uh, you go to seminary or you read, you know, there's systematic theology textbooks that are thousands and thousands of pages. Uh, a, a church that's under persecution, whether it's the early church, the Chinese church, or any of these other movements, simply doesn't have the time or use for something like that, right? You, you, they're moving quick. They're meeting in houses. It's very much underground, and they don't have the, the sort of massive weighty systems that we as the modern church have developed. Now, that's not to say that that's all terrible. What it is to say is that the, the rapidity, that the speed with which the gospel is able to transmit and, and pass from person to person speeds up the more succinct and, and focused the message can be, right? It's easy to pass on a simple message. It can be complicated to pass on a very complex systematic theology, right? Um, and so that early church doesn't have a whole lot of use and the Chinese church doesn't have a whole lot of use for these heavy systematic theologies, for a lot of weighty, heavy liturgy that we've developed. Um, and as you look at their message and what they were doing, you don't find any of that. Um, in part because they don't know it, it hasn't been developed, in part because they simply just can't carry all of that with them as it passes from person to person. It, it's, it should also be noted, and, and this may be run a little counter to what we assume reading our biblical texts, but the early church, as it, pa as it passed from person to person in the Roman Empire, we of course have the stories of Peter and Paul, sort of the great early evangelists and apostles of the church. Um, but the majority of the Christian message passes, that, that growth from 25,000 to 20 million in those couple hundred years happens by regular people moving and telling a story and building communities where they live. Um, and so while we have these great examples of apostles, for sure, the majority of that growth is actually on the backs and because regular people are sharing the message with each other as they move through the Roman empire. And that's not something that we should lose sight of, right? So the question then becomes, what, what is that core message? What is the, the fundamental core of early Christianity um, and Christianity through the last thousand years that has allowed that pace, that, that explosion uh, to occur? Um, and it all goes back to uh, a passage in Deuteronomy. And I've or we mentioned, and I'll reiterate time and time again, that so much of Christianity and the message of Jesus has to be understood in light of the Old Testament. Um, but what we're going to look at today, our scripture comes from Deuteronomy. It's chapter six, and it's verses four through nine. And this is what's known as the Shema. Um, and it reads as follows. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I command you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, if you've seen or you know anything about the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, there have been a number of movies that have come out recently about that community. 
Uh, one of the things that you'll notice is uh, when they go to their time of prayer, sometimes the Hasidic and Orthodox Jews will actually tie a box on their forehead. Um, as they walk through doors, you'll, touch, you'll, you'll see that there's a little box on the doorpost and they, they will touch that. Sometimes they'll kiss it and touch it as they walk through their post. Sometimes that's at the, the door, at the front door. In some communities, that's in every doorpost in their house. And in that box is rolled up a little scroll with this passage, all right? Uh, Shema means to hear, to listen. And so as it, enter, or as it begins, it says, hear, O Israel. And so they just take that first word, hear, listen. And, and what is the, the message to be heard from the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? And if you are paying attention and you are thinking about the things that Jesus has said, what, what comes right after that? It says, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What is that? Yeah, Drew, say it louder. You got it right. It's the great commandment, right? Today, we're going to read Matthew, Matthew 22, 36 and 38. There's a Pharisee that's come to Jesus, and he wants to know. He says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord, with all your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And then he goes on to say, the second one, of course, is to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus picks up the Shema as the greatest commandment out of the Old Testament. Not one of the 10 commandments, although this summarizes them, of course. But the thing that Jesus wants to grab hold of to set as the foundation is the Shema, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind. And for Judaism, the Shema is a statement of what we call creational monotheism. So monotheism is one God, right? Mono being one, theos being the Greek word for God, monotheism. Um, and creational being, it's the one God who created everything. And we have a tendency to hear things like this, formulations like this, and we say there is only one God. And that's a theological statement for us. Right? It, is a, it is a statement about the nature of God. For Judaism and for first century hearers, to say there is but one God is certainly to describe God and it becomes a theological statement. But for them, it is much more um, a call to covenant faithfulness. There is one God, therefore we should listen to him. Does that make sense? It's like the next step. And we say, oh, there is one God. Okay, that's, that describes this God that we claim to worship. Uh, but for them, that second piece we claim to worship is absolutely fundamental, right? We must recognize, and this is kind of how we're picking up again our themes from last week, that there is a God, there is a Jesus, there is a Christ. He is the King. He is the one, the one and only God. And therefore, we ought to do what he says. Early Christians made sort of two simultaneous claims. The first was complete and graceful salvation, right? And, and this is what the four spiritual laws get at, right? That God loves us, that we have broken our covenant faithfulness, each of us individually, but all of us collectively. And that puts us in a bad spot, but that Jesus or God loves us, sends his only son, Jesus, to be our sacrifice, to bring us back into relationship. And it's in receiving and believing that truth um, that 
we are brought back into right relationship with him. Those are sort of the, the four laws as they, they work, right? But at the same time, the early church was making a total unqualified demand on the lives of its followers. And that's the piece that we so often leave by the wayside and, and that has been lost as we focus on the first, as we focus on salvation as, as the purpose of the gospel, we lose and we have lost in large measure this understanding that what the message of the early church, what the message of Jesus certainly was, was a message of kingdom, that we are citizens of that kingdom. And if when you have a king, you do what the king says, right? For the early church, that understanding excludes all other claims to loyalty and allegiance. So when the Roman culture understands itself uh, as a polytheistic culture, for the, Roman, the, the Greco-Roman world, worship of their gods, of their deities, was fundamental and crucial to the fabric of their society so that you really couldn't go anywhere or do anything and not in some way be acknowledging or worshiping one of the gods. So everyone had shrines in their homes, their events, their public festivals. They all surrounded some sort of polytheistic god idol worship. And it was in worshiping those gods that you ensured they looked favorably upon your community and then your community was blessed. So to not participate in those things or to reject those things was in a very real way to say to the larger community around you, I don't care about your well-being. I'm not going to worship your gods. I don't care whether they treat you well or not. And you can see right away how an early Christian who claims God as the sovereign, who rejects these festivals and, and Christians did, did not go to these things anymore. They understood that they could not participate in any sort of idol worship or other godly worship other than the true God that they knew because of their creational monotheism and the demand that it makes on them. And so they were outcasts from the very beginning. They, they understood, of course, that they could not participate in the military on two counts. One, they understood the call to Christianity to us was a call to pacifism, uh, which is certainly something that, that the American church and modern Christianity struggles with. Um, but also wrapped up in the military was this idea of emperor worship. We looked last week about how a gospel in that time of day was the message of the good, the good news of the reign and the ascension of the new emperor. And that carried through this, this idea that the emperor is a god carried through their entire society and was very prevalent in the military. And so Christians absolutely r resisted any sort of military service as a result. And they were, they were odd, therefore. They were outcasts. Um, and the sort of aristocracy, the, the, the higher elites, the intellectuals, the well-educated people looked down upon them as barbarians who got their truth from the silly Jews. They didn't get their truth from uh, the Greco-Roman philosophers, the wise people. Uh, and so they sort of kept to themselves and had a house meetings and had nothing to do with either the culture or the, the sort of the height of Greco-Roman culture, which was philosophy and, and the ways of thinking of their thinkers. And so on many counts, they were outcasts and looked down upon. But for the church, Jesus as Lord is absolutely critical and central. And here's a little sort of map or graphic that gives you an idea of sort of where we're going um, and some of the things we're going to be talking about over the next four, five, six weeks. But 
at the center of all of it, as you can see, is this idea and this uh, confession that Jesus is Lord, uh, which is more, as we've said now for two weeks, more than just Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is actually the one who rules the world and therefore gets to tell us what to do, how to act, how to behave. And I wish I could say that that's a simple thing to decipher and know. It's not. That's part of what being a community of uh, Christ is, is sort of figuring out what that means for here and now. Uh, but we have to understand that that's true, that Jesus is Lord. And then all of these other things, which uh, we're not going to go into today, but we're going to delve into into the, the coming weeks, start to make sense and have their proper orientation around Jesus as our Lord. It is the core and ultimately it is what unites us all. If I serve the King and you serve the King, then we have something to which we are both pointed and something by which we are both united, right? Uh, and it's much more tangible and real than you believe Jesus and you're saved and I believe Jesus and I'm saved, right? That's a little bit sort of amorphous and, and I hesitate to say it, but a little almost wishy-washy in a way that Jesus is Lord and I therefore have my allegiance to him and you do too, and you do too. And so now we're all sort of working and pulling in the same direction, having been given marching orders by the true king. And so it provides a unification, not only for each of us individually and corporately, but also provides sort of a unification uh, of, our, of our lives, right? If Jesus is Lord, he gets to have a say in not only what happens today, he has a say in what happens when I go home and spend time with my family. He ought to have a say in what happens when I go to work and how I work and what sort of work I do. He has a say in uh, what happens when I go to the bank and I spend my money, right? Uh, all of our resources become at his disposal. If he is the Lord and King of all, that means he's the Lord and King of all. And part of the problem with the way that we have talked and put forth our gospel message over the last century is that it allows for uh, the language of monotheism to still be used. We still talk in that way, but we live in a way that is actually polytheistic. The idea that we have multiple gods and multiple allegiances. If Jesus is just our savior in some ways, like our insurance for the afterlife, the thing that's going to get us to heaven. Well, how does that make necessarily any sort of concrete demand on how I spend my money or my time or what I do with my life and my work time, right? Um, it, it doesn't. And in a large measure, it hasn't. And, and that's to a large degree why we have such a problem is we don't understand the extent to which Jesus is Lord as a confession and must apply to all aspects of our life. Jesus as Lord is, as we said, the gospel and the gospel is a story. And so the gospel story is a narrative that we find our place in. And that gospel narrative then allows us to critique all sorts of other stories and narratives that give life meaning. Um, we said a few weeks ago, I mentioned that sort of the Exodus story was a myth. And, and I quickly said that I don't mean by myth something that's not true. What I mean is it is a story that gives purpose to the nation of Israel. It is the story they rehearse and tell and they identify themselves as being part of that story. And the gospel is that story for Christians. It is the story that we say, okay, here is the pattern of Jesus's life. Here are the things that happen. And now I'm supposed to step into that story and continue that story, right? And I make my decisions based upon how that narrative 
played out then. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we figure out how that story is now playing out now. Um, some of the other stories, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these because uh, we could definitely get lost in the weeds. Um, but the other stories that Jesus is Lord certainly uh, provides uh, a counter narrative too. Uh, the first is the story of individualism, uh, the, that I am the center of the world or center of at least my world. Um, Jesus, obviously, as Lord, says, no, no, you're not. Jesus is the center of the world and ought to be the center of your life. Um, consumerism, the idea that I am the thing and the things that I own. Now, a lot of these sound sort of ridiculous when you say them out loud, but you start to think about the way that you make decisions and you live your lives. I know for myself, I'm not going to necessarily judge all of you, but I know for myself, all of these things actually are very true. Right? I make decisions based upon the idea that I, I'm probably the center of my life. Now, in my better moments, I certainly don't, but we can all slip into these things. I definitely make decisions at times in my life and have made decisions based upon what I want. The idea that I'm somehow going to get some satisfaction or purpose out of buying a thing, whatever that thing might be. Nationalism is a big one for us, certainly. The idea, it starts actually that the idea that our, our nation is God's nation, when in reality, God's nation is the church, right? God has said that he, he has made a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and that's the church. And to say that our nation is God's nation, well, that says something different, right? God's nation is actually much bigger, broader, and different than the American nation. And we need to understand Jesus being Lord makes that claim, and we must understand that distinction. Does that mean we hate America? No, no, I'm not saying that. But what, what I'm saying is we need to understand that there is a difference. And as we've talked about this clash of kingdoms, we need to be ready to allow God's demands and God's nation to critique the nations of the world and to hold them accountable. Um, moral relativism, the idea that there is no truth to be known universally, uh, obviously a God who is the universal truth that has been made real flesh and blood and lived among us uh, says something radically different than you can't know truth. Of course we can know truth. His name is Jesus and he had lots to say. The idea of scientific naturalism that all that matters ultimately is matter, that there's nothing beyond the physical world that we see the call it new age ideology, but this idea, it's kind of the opposite of scientific naturalism. And this is the idea that we are all gods in some way, we're all divine. And if we can just sort of separate ourselves from the mess and the muck and the mire of this world, that we can sort of live into our own divinity, which uh, in the face of a claim that Jesus is Lord is sort of almost ridiculous. Postmodern tribalism, uh, this one is becoming much more prevalent in our world. And we can even see this in the church. Um, but this is the idea that what matters most is the beliefs and ideas of your group, right? And there's a way which that's true about the church, right? If we're, if we're talking about the church as the group and the beliefs that we have in Jesus, certainly that's okay. But what we end up finding is all sort of segmented, different ideologies, theologies uh, within the church itself that pit, each, pit themselves against one another cause this sort of splintering and fracturing of the family of God that was called to be unified to begin with. Uh, and the last is this idea of therapeutic salvation, um, that if I can just sort of be uh, introspective enough, if I meditate enough, that I can fulfill my potential, my human potential, uh, that I carry with me everything that I need to be the person that I'm supposed to be. And that, of course, in light of 
the teachings of Jesus is again sort of uh, ridiculous, but prevalent nonetheless. And all of those find uh, voice, certainly in our culture, but if, you, if we look around, we certainly, particularly those first three, uh, let's go back, right? This idea of individualism. And we talked last week about how sort of the four spiritual laws and the salvation culture very quickly can become individualistic, right? It can become about you because the proposition that's built into the four spiritual laws is God made you, you have sinned, you have fallen out of relationship. God sent Jesus to save you. And if you believe you can come back into right relationship with God. And so built in there is this very sort of personal faith that's between you and God. And it really doesn't go beyond that. And so that has found expression certainly within the church over the last hundred years or so. Uh, consumerism, much of church attendance and church hopping is a result of did I find the thing that I wanted to find today at church? Was it a good talk? Was it a good worship? Um, it becomes about consuming an experience rather than coming to worship and to give. So there's some just tangible ways in which some of these things have found expression even in the church and that we need to be prepared and ready to critique that and speak against that. If Jesus is Lord, is our gospel, then we have a foundation from which to critique those things in a way that Jesus is our savior does not allow for. In, in a very real way to say Jesus is our savior becomes all about the afterlife, all right? Jesus is your savior says to everyone, well, when this life is over, you're gonna get to go to heaven and spend it worshiping God, which is great and true and a beautiful thing. But how does that have any real bearing on what we do today or tomorrow or for the next few years or next 40 years? or in some case, 80 and 90 years, depending on how old we are. What, what do we do for that period? Salvation culture and the four spiritual laws taken only by themselves just don't provide for that. And so if we think back to sort of like, what's the, what's the intent of this talk today is how do we become a church that becomes this sort of growth movement? We have to have something that's actually compelling and meaningful. If your message is something that is for someone 50 years from now, that's not really compelling. That's not gonna, that's gonna, sure you can scare me into believing that Jesus is my savior because I don't wanna go to hell. But one of the big problems that the church has had, the American church in particular has had is, is making disciples, people who actually act on a day-to-day -day based upon the teaching of Jesus and salvation culture and the four spiritual laws just don't provide that in the way that the message of Jesus being king can and does. Salvation culture, we can say, tells us what we're saved from whereas a true gospel culture tells us what we're saved for. Does that difference make sense to you? All right. Jesus as Lord tells us we're saved for something. The coming kingdom of God means that we are saved to be part of the kingdom. And that is the core message that grew the early church that was at the core of the Chinese church movement uh, that is very much core at the Methodist movement. I mean, Methodists are called Methodists because they have methods, right? Actual tangible things that they do as a result of understanding that Jesus is their God and King. Um, and it was putting those things into practice that sort of lit a fire first in England and then certainly in, in our country. But salvation culture doesn't and, and almost can't provide that level and sort of meaning for life. Um, the only meaning and, and sort of purpose it can give us and does give us is 
going to heaven, right? Eternal salvation, uh, which again is a beautiful thing, but it is one piece of the entire story. As we end today, I, I, I want to circle back to what the New Testament writers have actually said, because a lot of this uh, sort of makes sense. It's good discussion. Uh, we can see from these sort of church movements that this is actually what the message was, and that's why it worked. But does that necessarily mean that it's what God says, what, it's, what Jesus says, is what this text says? Um, and, and so I want to spend time looking at two different passages today, briefly. The first comes from James. Uh, James is, for those of you who don't know, James is actually the brother of Jesus, who did not believe Jesus was the Son of God during his life, but that subsequent to his death and resurrection, uh, not only believed and took hold of the message, but became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in his letter, he says this in the second verse. He says, you believe that God is one. All right, so right there is the, the reiteration of the Shema. The Lord your God is one. You believe that God is one, you do well. Good for you, right? He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is dead? So what is he saying? What's his point in, in that, that verse, those verses? Say that one more time. Yes, sort of saying God is one is not enough, right? Simple mental assertion to believing that Jesus is the son of God is ultimately not enough. He says, even the demons know that. They believe, they know, not only do they believe that, they actually know that to be fact. And he says, even they believe that, but it doesn't do them any good. And then he goes on to say that faith without works, this translation says bare and other translations will say dead. And this idea, the, the idea or the thrust of that is that a belief that is just a mental assertion or saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is my savior, but that doesn't acknowledge his lordship and therefore compel action as a result of that is actually not belief at all. It's useless, right? It doesn't do the thing that you want it to do. And another way of saying that is the four spiritual laws by and of themselves don't do the thing that they say they do. They, in some way, some real way, are almost self-defeating if it's only that, if it never goes beyond that. The next is from, that we're going to look at is from Matthew, and this comes from chapter 7. This is Jesus himself. Uh, this comes right after his discussion of the tree and its fruits. He talks about, you know, you will know the tree from its fruits. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. I'm honest with you, that, that even more than James shakes me to my core. And it ought to, if you understand what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is there are plenty of people who claim his lordship, who claim his name, who believe in word and assertion that he is the son of God, but because they don't truly get it and accept it and incorporate all that into their life, they're going to find that Jesus rejects them in the end. And so I'll reiterate what I said a minute ago, that in some ways the four spiritual laws and the culture of salvation that have come from them over the last decades is self-defeating. It actually puts you on the wrong side of both of those verses if what we've preached is believe in Jesus and you're going to be saved and nothing more than that, what we've taught everybody is to do the same thing that the demons do. Believe, and that's enough. And what James and Jesus himself are saying is that's not. 
Nero, Emperor Nero, who was one of the first and certainly the worst emperors to persecute the church, did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed Jesus was Lord in their hearts. He threw Christians to the lions because they rejected large portions of the culture, because they refused to worship the emperor, because they refused military service, because they understood that Jesus was their Lord and King and Savior. But all of that taken together means they have to live a different way. And in that time and place, they absolutely butted up against each other and required them to reject much of the empire and it got them killed. The gospel makes demands on us. Jesus as Lord requires us to act, behave, say certain things, right? And it requires us to set aside, abandon and critique all other stories that would try to make a claim on our allegiance. There are ways in which other stories can interface with and overlap, but if we're not willing to be critical about those other stories and critique them from a place that says Jesus is Lord and allow him to speak to us through his spirit about how we ought to either accept or reject these other ideas, then we've missed entirely the point. Being a church, certainly a church that wants to grow and growth is for the purpose of bringing others into the kingdom of reconnecting people with God, allowing them to understand the true lordship of Jesus and allow that to affect their lives and establish the kingdom here and now. If we want to do that, we must at first understand the status of Jesus as our Lord and understand that that is the core of the gospel that we've now talked about for two weeks. If we can grasp that, if we can hold that as our core, we have a chance to do great things. If we reject that and we want to go on being a church of individuals or, church, or a church of people who want to just consume religious goods and services, or if we want to create our own little tribes, even within this group that says, well, we like it this way and we like it this way. And, and then we pit, each other, pit against ourselves against each other. We have no hope. Because in doing that, we've bought into these other narratives that the world wants to give us. And we've rejected the gospel narrative that we serve a king. I have been fortunate over my life in ministry to find people that understand that and buy into that. And I have done church with people that look so different than myself that were it not for Jesus, were it not for God, were it not for our uh, love for Jesus and our understanding of his lordship, we would never come into contact with each other because they're younger or older or they look different or they're a different color or all sorts of reasons our paths should never cross. But the thing that Jesus does is transcends all of our differences and brings us into one family, one nation that recognizes him as our king. And because of that reality, we have everything in common, right? Our core inner being is the same as a result of that. And that's something that we can unite about. That's something we can unite around and be motivated by. And so as we finish today, I just pray uh, and ask that in the coming week for certain, before we get into our next discussion, 
that we would all spend some time thinking about this, struggling with this. This is not an easy thing to deal with. Uh, it's not easy to be self-critical about this and look at ourselves and say, okay, in what ways do I fail to acknowledge that God is king in my life? Where do I not let God have the say? Do I do something professionally as a job that I probably shouldn't be doing? Uh, I, I know I've made changes in my professional career as a result of asking that question. Um, sometimes it means a change of job. For the early church, it certainly did. People left all sorts of different professions, understanding that the thing that they were doing was not kingdom work. Um, it may just mean reorienting the thing that you do and re-understanding and taking a different focus with it. How do you treat your bank account? How do you treat your family time? How do you interact with those around you? Do you do so in a loving way, a gracious way? Uh, do you see them as image bearers of God? Uh, these are all questions we must ask ourselves that Christ asks us to think about, wrestle with, and struggle with. And so I want to end today with that charge, with that challenge for all of us, that we think about that as individuals and as a church over the next week, as we come together next week to begin to talk about what discipleship is. Uh, if we don't first have a good foundation of Jesus as Lord, becoming a disciple is nearly impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are the true God, that you are one and you have created everything. And God, we have often give lip, given lip service to that reality, but today we come before you and we confess your lordship and we acknowledge your sovereign right over our lives. And we ask that you would work on our hearts in the coming days and weeks, um, that you would convict us in the areas that we have not lived in a way that uh, confesses that reality. We just ask that you would unite us in a common goal and mission that you have set out for us, Lord. And we just ask that you would bless our service in this time and place, that you would bless this church and this community, that you would provide for us uh, a purpose and a meaning uh, that, that is focused on and geared towards bringing your kingdom to this time and place. We just ask that we would do all of that in the umbrella of your grace and mercy with reality and an, an acknowledgement that you love us and that you stand ready to give us your spirit and your power to do the thing that you're ready to ask us to do. We just ask all this in the name of your son and in the power of your spirit. Amen.